Hey everyone, welcome back this week. It's been kind of an exciting yet not exciting week for me. So this is going up the week of July 4th really. So I spent July 4th as an American in London in self-isolation because the app here, the NHS app, the National Health Service app, if you have it on and have contact tracing on, which I do because I think it's the data is important to help the government manage things and what's going on. But if you have the app on and you check into a venue and then you're within six feet or two meters of someone for 15 minutes who then later tests for COVID and that person then reports that they have COVID to the app and says they want to share with their contacts anonymously. Well, if you, if that happened, you're, you're getting a ping. So I got a ping. So I was told to isolate for seven days. I was pretty mad about it until I realized, you know, for a minute. And then I said, you know what, this is what we're supposed to do. And I don't really think the rule is necessarily logical, but it is changing in August. So I, um, I was happy to do it in that sense. And I actually ordered groceries and cooked some really good food and just took time to do some editing and do some work and it was all right. So I feel like that was the best way to handle it was just that it's something I can't change and just move forward. I've gotten in a few conversations recently where I feel like I've been baited into discussing things with anti-maskers and anti-vaxxers and I just I don't get it (laughs) I don't understand the people who say if you wear a mask it doesn't help prevent someone else from getting your germs because it's like if I spit on someone with a mask on it's not going to go outside the mask but if I spit without a mask it will go somewhere so I don't understand the logic but I was told it was sad that people wear masks, and I think it's sad people don't. So people are using their platforms however they want. I'm using my platform for this. I think the person I interviewed this week will understand it's Chantel Pratt. She's awesome. It's She's someone I heard about well before I met her because a lot of my friends that I met at my first job were friends with her in college, and we all went to the same college, but... They graduated a couple years before me, and she's a neuroscientist and just just super cool. Like I loved chatting with her. I loved knowing more about her work, and she's someone who's written a book, and she just finished it, and it was really cool to see that, you know, because it's it's a lot of work for anyone, and she's writing a nonfiction, which is really tough and trying to explain difficult concepts to people who wouldn't have studied them for years or normally understand them. So that's who my guest is. Sorry about the rant about masks. I don't even think it was that much of a rant, to be honest. I'm inspired by Mark Maron this week. That I love that that guy says whatever he wants to say. And I just I feel like it's important that we just keep doing the thing that will be the best for everyone. So please stay safe. Things are starting to open up in London. They're starting to open up everywhere if they haven't already. And I just really want as many people as I know to stay safe. And really, generally, I mean, I think any numbers staying even or getting lower is better at this point. But I just hope that everyone's well, that people had good holidays and they're enjoying the summer safely. So uh, let's go ahead and start the pod. Welcome to More Than Work, the podcast reminding you that your self-worth is defined by more than your job title. I'm Rabia, an IT project manager, comedian, nonprofit volunteer, and sometimes activist. Every week, I'll chat with a guest about pursuing passions outside of work or creating meaningful opportunities inside the workplace. As you listen, I hope you'll be inspired to do the same. Here we go. Welcome back, everyone. So today I have Chantelle Pratt. She's a professor of psychology and neuroscience at the University of Washington. I could have added a doctor before her title, but she's not pretentious. So we're not going to do that. But she is also what you'd call a doctor. She has a PhD. So how are you doing, Chantelle? Thank you so much for not adding the doctor. I usually tell people I prefer Chantal because as a first gen student, when people call me Dr. Pratt in my family, they're almost always making fun of me. So it's still, <laughs> I mean, I've been, I just got promoted to full professor. I've been doing this for, I guess, 12 years at this 
uh, place, but still Dr. Pratt seems like a, like ironic. <laughs> you, you hit the nail on the head there. I'm glad to, that you don't see me as pretentious. Anyway. No, I don't. I don't think so. <laughs> so you've been at the University of, Was- University of Washington. Wow. That was usually not that hard to say for 12 years then you said. I think so. I think this is my, it's, you know, we lost a year. So there's that squishy year where mm-hmm. I think it's 12 years. It could be 11 <laughs> or 13. <laughs> Let's Something. say 12 years plus or minus one year. That would be very accurate. Yeah. I've been here for a while. And fun fact, University of Washington is the university that's in Washington, unlike Washington University, which is somewhere in the middle of the states. That's in St. Louis, actually. Yeah. I applied there. Yeah. A long time I would ago. Tell people, the university, the University of Washington that's in Washington to help them. Yeah. No, that makes sense. So you're officially a professor before. Were you like an associate professor? Or how's that path work? Yeah, I guess I'm officially not until September, but I'm, okay. you know, I'm trying it on for size. Associate professor doesn't really roll off the tongue that much. <laughs> No, no, no. And the, the the abbreviation of associate professor, it's like, I don't know. And yeah, before or, that. Yeah, yeah or, or it could be ass professor. I don't know. Ass. Like. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So I'll put the explicit rating on this one because of me. But <laughs> no, that's that's really awesome. So how did you end up And I kind of know part of your story just because you were roommates and best friends with some of my best friends in college. But how did you get into academia? Like, how did you end up just staying with that? You said you're a first generation college student. Same here. I definitely stopped school at some point. But (laughs) (laughs) I man, I think that the, the short answer is I got fascinated with the brain and it was kind of late-ish about my junior year, between my sophomore and junior year in college, I started out pre-med, literally like first couple years of college, as our joint friends know, was not really about college for me. It was a lot about figuring out how to be an individual. And I was pre-med mostly because I knew I was smart, had a lot of feedback from the world that I was smart. I'm like, oh, smart people go to med school. Yeah. And in the middle of an accelerated pre-med program, I had to take one social science class and I learned about the Phineas Gage story and this guy who got a railroad spike through the front of his head and how he kind of became really crass, kind of like went from being an upstanding citizen to kind of behaving like more like me all the time, (laughs) a little little mildly to moderately inappropriate and, you know, couldn't kind of stick with the plan. And, and it just hit me that, you know, I've been studying all these organs, but there's an organ between our ears that makes us us. And that was just like, for me, it was kind of game over. I mean, I had, there was a lot of in-between things, like the fact that I was a single mom in Mm. undergrad and needed a job and found a job looking for people who wanted experience with kids. And it was a neuroscience lab and they were studying how baby brains changed as they learned language. And, and, you know, so it was just like, you know, I was already interested in neuroscience. I was qualified for this particular job because I could actually entertain a baby. (laughs) We had a trivia, a science trivia the other day in the lab. And that was one of the questions, like what special skill got Chantal into neuroscience? And it was actually that I did puppet shows for the kids. So like, once you get the cap on them, they need to be, it's this, it's the, probably the most difficult job I've ever done in neuroscience because you need to get a baby. First of all, babies are out of control. You yeah. need to get a baby to be like sitting still and paying attention, but not like so excited that they're screaming or moving around or waving their hand and not like scared or bored. Like you, you just need to get them in this optimal zone. So I, I there, I think developed my interest in individual differences because you had to be able to tell right away, like how much energy do I bring it to this baby to get them in the zone? you know. And along the way, I just learned more and more about brain and cognition and how different, you know, we were studying like, Oh, what does a six month old look like? What does a 12 month old look Hmm. like? What does a 20 month old look like? And I was always like, Whoa, they look really different. You know, the six month old looks really different from one another. And, and that part of it always kind of captivated me. And so I think, you know, part of it is like luck and part of it is just me, I think feeling empowered to move towards things that felt good. Like once I had that aha moment, like, and I was young, I was 19. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was when I switched from like almost being done with all my classes for pre-med to being really interested in the brain and the human brain. 
And when I got, when I sort of realized like, what am I doing here? I'm going to be in debt. I don't like blood. No one should ever trust me with their lives. You know, like <laughs> when I got, when I got blown away by the brain, I think I sort of started giving myself permission to, to follow things that I love. Mm-hmm. And from then on, it was just like, I'm going to keep moving towards things that, that feel good. That's, that's really cool because I think too, probably being first generation in college and also we grew up at a time and I feel like it's a little bit less now where you were a doctor or a lawyer. Like I wanted to be a lawyer. So we have two first gens here, one that wanted to be a doctor, one that wanted to be a lawyer because that's what we were told was the successful path. And it's just, yeah. We inherited that, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's just what we were told. So it's really cool. You figured out what you wanted to do. So when you say that brains look different, it's just from all the scans you're doing and like, what are you seeing that's really easy for someone to understand, I guess? Mm. So when I was a youngster in the lab, I was really captivated by how different the babies behaved okay, and how different what they could do was, you know, especially at these kind of pivotal, you know, when they start to learn a language, you know, some talk there, you know, a lot and some aren't talking at all. And, and then I was also analyzing at that point, I was reading brainwaves. So as you can mm-hmm. actually record the electrical activity outside of the head, that's like millions and millions of neurons working underneath there. Huh. And ba- one great thing about babies, they have thin scalps and big brains. So their signals come through really nicely <laughs> if they're not laughing or squirming or doing other inconvenient baby things. But so I, I also got to see sort of how the organization of these electrical impulses, these responses to things like words or pictures on the screen, depending on how old they were, sounds changed and when they changed at different points, depending on what the babies could do. So now in the lab, I kind of use all of the different toys that you can use to figure out how people's brains work. I guess I would say my main interest is understanding the relationship between brain and behavior, but in the level of an individual. So I think something that makes my work unique is that brains are really complicated. And so most neuroscience research looks at average, you know, they take a group of 20 and they say, this is, you know, you, you, you average them and you say, this is how brains work. And it's, totally unsatisfying and problematic, not only because we're not looking at average brains, we're looking at white undergraduate Mm -hmm. from, you know, college students, Mm -hmm. mostly monolingual English speaking brains. We're going, this is how brains work. And also because sometimes, and this is what I found out really in my dissertation, like sometimes if you take an average and there are two or three ways to do something, Mm -hmm. that average doesn't actually explain anybody. Yeah. So, so I use magnetic resonance imaging, which I know you and I have talked about, like how we use it for health and how we use it for um, research. Mm-hmm. And that really like watches, a, that will let you look at a brain structure really closely or actually let you watch which parts of the brain are using a lot of oxygen and see mm-hmm. like what part of this brain is working as this person does a task. I use EEG, you know, I I record brain signals on top of the head and that doesn't really tell you where, but it tells you with like a millisecond precision when a brain is working harder. We use something called uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, which actually takes advantage of the fact that if a magnetic field rises and falls really quickly, it creates an electrical current. And this lets us stimulate a brain through it goes right through the scalp so it lets us excite a brain kind of like a reflex you know we can we can stimulate tickle different parts of the brain and see how what happens we can fatigue it so if you stimulate it over and over once a second for like five minutes mm-hmm. you get something not as strong but kind of like back in the day when there used to be flash bulbs and you would have a blind spot in your eye for a minute just because that part of the brain that's processing vision ran out of neurotransmitter mm-hmm. it gets tired and so you can you can kind of disrupt or excite or fatigue different parts of the brain and then not only test what's lighting up, but is it is it important? Is it necessary? What job is that thing doing? So I kind mm-hmm. of I've done some studies with patients, too, but I kind of like to use all of the tools to figure out how different mechanisms or how different ways that people's brains work relate to how they process information and in what situations they'll thrive and in what situations they'll struggle. Hmm. 
how did you evolve to, into that study of the individual versus going into the pursuit that you mentioned where it's just kind of averaging things and kind of coming to conclusions? It's so interesting. I think part of me thinks I've always been captivated by that. So I was, when you asked that question, I was taken back to a time that I gave a job talk and the job talk, I was invited to, you know, apply for this job. And the person who invited me was actually one of my previous research mentors. And she was like, basically like Chantel does all of these things. Like, I don't even know how to describe what she does. And I was like, wow, that's a really flattering introduction, but (laughs) not really. I think I've always been interested in this, even from the time I was looking at at babies, I was like, what is, is it experience? Is it the way their brains work? Do people talk to them more? Like what is driving this, these individual differences? And, and when I was in, in that lab, before I even started graduate school, I was part of a study where we trained babies. We gave them new words and these weird, like we use parts of horse bits and things that we were pretty sure a baby hadn't seen. And we're like, look at the wug, 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 wug. So we tried to control for experience and watch the way different brains Mm -hmm. learn. I think they're, most psychologists and most probably, it's particularly true of psychologists, most of us are doing me search of some kind, right? And I think I'm pretty weird. I think I probably spent my first 20 years of life trying to fit in and then the next 20 plus just embracing, oh, how am I weird? Like what made me that way? And I think, you know, that's probably part of it. But I also think I'm really, probably bigger part of it is that I'm really lucky, like coming from, you know, my dad was a bricklayer. And my mom started out as like an administrative assistant, worked her way up to a really important managerial job in a company. But I have a breadth of experience with different kinds of people. And I'm really thankful for that. When they say, how many people do you hang out with that don't have a college degree? Like plenty, you know what I mean? So I think the, the fact that I I have, you know, friends that are MacArthur Genius Award winners and friends that are preschool teachers, and, and they're all really amazing and brilliant and in different ways. And so this one size fits all neuroscience didn't match my experiences. I think also like in this particular climate, as we, you know, are going through the one year anniversary of George yeah. Floyd's murder and all of this stuff, I think people have a hard time. I think there's a reason that we do the one size fits all. And one is that people misuse differences. And I think that there's like a predisposition to believe that different means I'm better than you and not just Mm -hmm. different means different. And that's not the case in the brain. There are a lot of design choices that a brain makes that makes you better in one situation and worse in another, you know, but not better or worse overall. So I think that we, we need to be responsible in talking about differences. But I also think we just, everyone needs to stretch a little bit and understand complexity and that it's not unidimensional. We're not getting into a line like your brain is better than my brain is better than Mm -hmm. their brain. It's like there are differences and they're beautiful and interesting. And we need, if we're going to have models of how brains work that can help lots of different kinds of people, we need to embrace that complexity and and try and understand it. That makes a lot of sense. And just Kind of one thing that's cool is you realizing how each individual is different, but from a different perspective, like there's the, there's the sayings like, oh, we're each person's unique that you get told when you're a kid. And you're kind of, yeah. <laughs> but there's also the truth of that. Did this understanding of the brain in this different level and also becoming a mother pretty young and then working your way through. And I, I want to acknowledge that you went through college working and with a kid and who's an extraordinary kid too, not just like, you know, just some regular kid, (laughs) but she is, I mean, she's really, I I think she could, she could definitely has a more education than I do at this point from that perspective, for sure. But, you know, did it change how you parented and how you thought of yourself and your ability to even do that? Because that's hard. That's that's such a good question. I think, well, let's uh, give credit to Jasmine. You know, she is an exceptional kid and she had a very even temperament, which helped a lot. (laughs) I think the truth is I was a parent before I was a scientist. And I'm really thankful for that, actually, because I have seen a lot of psychologists raise children. And I asked a lot of questions about I think that the more you know, the more anxious you become. And like, there's, you know, you were talking about inheriting Mm -hmm. ideas about what's good, right? And so the ideas about what good parenting means changes from culture to culture and from, you know, generation to generation. 
And I, in a, in a lot of ways, I'm really thankful that I was young and frankly stupid when I had Jasmine because I used my instincts mm-hmm. and just like, again, in parenting, I moved towards what felt good. And like, I had a lot of, you know, I didn't have a lot of knowledge on board to make me afraid of things. And I had a lot of instincts on board and just sort of, I guess, relationship skills. So yeah, if I had a kid right now, I'm sure it would be a disaster (laughs) because I would be so freaked out about all of the different ways. And, you know, I I had a very clear focus with Jasmine and I was like, don't mess her up. She's perfect. Mm -hmm. And I did pretty good there. I think medium good depends on if you ask me or Jasmine. (laughs) In terms of it being hard, I think, you know, I remember my stepdad telling me something like, I'm not worried about you because you have a burning desire to succeed. And that didn't feel right. I don't feel like I'm ambitious or my goal is to succeed. I think what what feels right to me is that I didn't consider failure to be an option. I didn't think yeah. about like, this is hard. What if I don't make it? I was just like, this is my life, you know, next step. Kind of, and I don't know what that is. I think the the I think the word that I feel more aligned with is stubborn. <laughs> uh, it's like okay, well now I'm pregnant. Well, shit, things are going to change, but mm-hmm. you know, it's going to be different, not necessarily better or worse. And certainly, I think that like parenting is an excellent example of like things where you have like a now I have to make a plan to take a shower, and that freaking sucks. But now I have a really big mission for being, I'm a a model for somebody else. And I want to follow my dream and teach my daughter that she matters and that her career matters and that Mm -hmm. her passions matter. And that was like incredibly motivating. So, you know, different. Yeah, totally. Not necessarily better or worse. No, that's, no, that's awesome. And it's a good way to look at it. I think because people have different experiences. Like I don't have kids and I don't believe I'm going to, but that's a decision at some point. And then other people have kids when they're older and some when they're younger and it can happen at different times. I can see how having kids when you're older would make you more paranoid because you do know more stuff and you you've given advice too. So I'm sure some of that's coming back to you. Like (laughs) I've given people advice. I had a mother's day special. Well, with some of your friends actually. And it was like, you know, yeah, I've given you guys advice. I've not, but you know what? You listened and that's too bad. I'm not a parent, you know, <laughs> but I'm sure if I had a kid, it would all come back to me like, oh, hmm, probably wasn't the best shout, you know? Well, just like, it, just like, I mean, one thing that I know is true is that this is true in parenting. I only had one kid, but I did have a foster kid for a little while who's my niece. And I have grad students who are like big kids, you know, you spend Mm -hmm. five years of your life raising them. And I don't think it's a one size fits all there either. I mean, I think that that's something that'll work great with one. You're like, I'm winning that parenting. Like, this is, look at me. I'm the mentor of the year. And then it's like, next person, like, no. (laughs) Then like, oh, it wasn't me. It was them. (laughs) Yeah, like, like Jasmine walked in the door, successful human. I just had to get out of her way. You know, it definitely was like. Not, not a lot. Yeah. So with the TMS, now, was that also part of like a Black Mirror episode? Yeah. So like 95% of what I do in my life is studying individual people and how brains work. But there was this 5% of my life that I got famous and infamous for. And that is that I use that tool which, you know, I, I put two, I was part of a team that put two tools together, mm-hmm. one that you can use to stimulate a person's brain and another technology that's existed since before I was in graduate school, where you can read a person's brain and use it to make, it's a brain computer interface. You can use it to m- move a cursor on your mouse, or most recently they're using it to like type, right? I don't mm-hmm. know if you guys saw that on the, on the news, but you can read brainwaves and decode the signals and use it to create some effect on a machine. So we stuck those things together and actually linked. I was the first person in the world to link two human brains together. One was my husband's and one was my colleague Rajesh Rao in computer science. So 
We did the first brain-to-brain interface in which Rajesh played a video game using my husband's brain as basically a very high-quality Wiimote, you know. So he, Andrea, was under the TMS coil, which was over his motor cortex, and his hand was over a joystick button. And Rajesh was watching the video game and thinking, like, there's a plane flying down over or a missile or something, and you have to shoot the missile and not shoot the plane. So when he would think about moving his hand, it would trigger the computer to send the signal across the internet and move Andrea's hand. So we started that. And then I know, I know you're shaking your head. <laughs> well, I'm shaking my, yeah. So just for the record, I'm shaking my head. I'm also thinking, man, what if your Wi-Fi goes out or something? Like what happened? Here? <laughs> Game over. Game over. <laughs> Game over. And you know, that it was a cool technique and it was, you know, we, we went on to do another thing that got a lot of media, which was the social network where we had three people playing Tetris with their brains. Amazing. <laughs> so two people would be saying like, rotate, don't rotate. We added noise to one person so that the, the interpreter would have their brain would sort of merge the signals and be like, who am I going to listen to when they were inconsistent? And so we, we hooked three people together to play a game of Tetris. You know, at the end of the day, it's a very inefficient way to play Tetris. <laughs> <laughs> but you can say you did it. And um, and my piece on that was really, like, my involvement in that was really, like, if we have really good tools for decoding signals from somebody's brain, our, our TMS, the thing that you use to excite the brain, is much less refined. I don't think in my lifetime, I don't think we'll be able to put like an idea in someone's head. It's very much like you're exciting mm. a huge piece of cortex, a millimeter, which is like millions and millions and millions of neurons. And I can make your finger twitch, mm-hmm. but I can't make you think of an apple. I might, I might, you know, do a little trick to make like you think of a verb that uses fingers more than a verb that uses feet or something like that. But But my piece on that was really the fact that if you're going to translate information from one mind to another, you need to know the codes that each mind uses, right? Mm. So all of your tools need to be fine-tuned for that person and then kind of translated into the next person. So that was my role on the team. But yes, that's what got me a little gig in the I Am Human documentary, which is all about brain, you know, interfacing technologies and the ethics, of course, and the 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 possible benefits for people with Parkinson's or, or tetraplegics and things like that. And and yeah, it got me a lot of also people who are very concerned about me doing evil science or reading their minds or stuff like that. <laughs> and I rightfully so, I understand that people are concerned about privacy and and going back to the idea that your brain makes you you, right? Like there are some really interesting ethical things you can get into. Like your brain makes you you, Rabia. And if you sign mm-hmm. up for the study and I stimulate your brain, I'm changing you. Yeah. Like, what if you, after I changed you, didn't want to do that? What have we done? You know what I mean? Like, there's yeah, yeah. a lot of there's a lot of really interesting things around there. But I will say, for anyone who is listening to this and is secretly worried that people are trying to control their minds, there's no way anyone could use this technology without your consent. Like, you have mm-hmm. to be there, be still to the millimeter perception. And then, you know, you might say, well, what if somebody forced me at gunpoint to sit still for this study. And I was like, well, it'd probably be easier just to force you at gunpoint to do whatever they want you to do. Cause all I'm going to be able to do at the end of the day is make your finger twitch. So <laughs> <laughs> I understand people being freaked out about that. I don't mean to joke about it, but I'd also for that reason, want to say there's no way that somebody could like, yeah. I don't know, make you cheat on your husband or something <laughs> with, <laughs> with brain computer interfaces or, you know, or your math test or whatever. So, also, if you hear that excuse from your partner, exactly, it's not it's true. A no, it's a it's a total no. Yeah, yeah. So don't get ideas. Anyone listening, any adulterers listening, please don't get <laughs> ideas about using this as a way of, of justifying it. Chantel Thank you. Pratt, Chantel Pratt made me do it. It's never. <laughs> it's, sometimes it's it's right, but not in this case. You moved. She made you move your finger, but you did the rest. You know. <laughs> That's right. That's so everything else was you, buddy, or lady, whoever you are. That's so funny. Whole new, whole new realm of trouble. That's great. <laughs> yeah. So with the documentary, too, if you want to talk a little bit about that, I mean, what's that experience been like in getting into media? Because then I want to lead to your book, but you've yeah. done different stuff in media. So what was the experience like of doing a documentary and being involved in that? 
The documentary was amazing. I think from beginning to end, the idea really evolved around what what it was, the message that they were trying to um, communicate. And one thing to point out is that both directors of that film are women and, and young women and badass women who I really, really, I mean, I'm amazed by and just like watching how they take this subject that could be scary or very cerebral and made it very they embody, they, they humanized it, right? I am human. Mm-hmm. And it's like, not like, let's talk about Neuralink and like what Elon Musk is going to do to pigs or whatever, but like, let's talk about real people and how this has changed our lives and what their decision process was like and um, what research is like and what we can do and what we can't do. And also I think, you know, about, they talked really intelligently about the ethical mm-hmm. concerns and how this is something that people need to be deciding now we don't want it to be like social media where we're like it's like the thing is out of the gate it's like you know disaster and now yeah. we're like how do we regulate this i mean if people are going to have headsets at home that they use to play their video games with or to imagine if you could augment your telephone calls with some kind of signal that tells you like whether the person on the other side is like excited or bored or mm-hmm. whatever like you know I, I imagine that, I mean, I know because I'm here in Seattle with all these tech companies that everybody in the world is working on different ways to listen to the brain and use it to inform their technology. So mm-hmm. how do we regulate that? How do we, you know, protect the thing that is most fundamentally making us us? I, I was thinking about, because you mentioned Parkinson's and I was thinking about ALS too, which I know are two different diseases, but like mm-hmm. there's the idea of people losing their ability to communicate and it's not like they stopped thinking. I mean, I had a friend who went through that. It's like they just can't speak anymore and can't write and stuff. And so the potential for allowing people to communicate for longer and those kind of things is really good. That's right. Yeah. And And I think there are also things that are, I think you're right. And I think communication is so important and we take it for granted, but you know, when I was thinking about this brain to brain thing, I thought like how many big technological human advances are centered around our ability to communicate from like the telegraph, the telephone, the cell phone, the internet, Mm -hmm. but all of these things rely on symbolic communication. They all rely on our ability to, you know, use words or graphics or something like that. But like, what if you, what about the stuff that you can't really describe really well? What about Mm -hmm. this? I mean, I think like being able to communicate period is really important, but like, what about the soup that that communication is in, right? Like what about the, the feeling behind the words or what about people who suck at picking the right words or just suck at picking, like understanding how someone else will interpret that word and adjusting it accordingly. I mean, I think there's a lot of opportunity for neural engineering to help with a lot of things, help directly affect all of the neurodegenerative, you know, problems, but also mood and everything like that. But I think that the opportunity to enhance communication is exciting, but also scary too. Like, yeah. I think, would you want someone to be able, like, you know, what if you could have like a billboard, <laughs> you know, like, <laughs> you want to be able to turn it off. Like, you know, I want the opportunity to share that private soup, you know, the, the space in which yeah. those words are coming through, but I definitely want to turn it off. Well, it's like those movies, like what women want. And then there's the new, I guess what men want was the other one where the lady or the guy can hear what all the women yeah. or all the men are thinking. And it's like, at some point you wouldn't, yeah, you want your pr- thoughts, your private thoughts kept private from people, you know, <laughs> even outside of a romantic comedy, like you just do. <laughs> totally, you know? totally. And you, the last, you know, the first person to get it's going to be the person who does it, puts the ads on your phone. So, mm. <laughs> right? Well, yeah, we're already, I mean, it's already true. If we talk about a product, we will see an yes. ad for it. So now yes. it's like, oh, I was only thinking, thinking about, about it. Thinking about it, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's so it's so crazy. So yeah, it's good that the ethics comes up. I was talking to this one woman I met who works in AI, but she specifically works in ethics on mm-hmm. AI. And I, I thought that was interesting, too, just because, I mean, even look at right now, I don't want to get too much into it. But like all the conspiracy <laughs> theories just about the vaccine and stuff. And it's just like, dude, but then I can see if they were saying something about other things, maybe it's more <laughs> like you're, again, you're not worried about the fact that you were served all the videos about those conspiracy theories because of an algorithm, but you're just concerned about 
the vaccine, why don't you be concerned about YouTube? <laughs> you know, like maybe just it's a suggestion because yeah, totally. there's all these ways that the data is being used now. And everyone that I know in technology is some form of AI. And this is just like a next level that let me. There's a siren going by. I know. I like I was taking that as a sign that what you were saying was really important. No, no <laughs> like just, you're under arrest. YouTube. No. I know. Yeah, exactly. The police. Well, it's like, this is, I live in Camden. So that's what happens. So that's really awesome that you were involved in that. And you've just done this work. Cause I, it is fascinating. I mean, it's scary to me, but it's fascinating. I have, I have MS. So I've spent a lot of time in MRIs and I've also spent a lot of time thinking about what if I can't, for me, it's mostly mobility I worry about, but I have thought about those things otherwise too, about just communicating and and those kind of things. And so, and then I've just become more aware during the pandemic too, of accessibility issues because I do comedy. And so a lot of shows were online and this made it easy for people to attend people who couldn't get to places before. And then zoom, like kept adding features and they added closed captioning because I never would have thought about, Oh, people can't hear. So zoom's hard for them to participate on. And then there's an app called clubhouse where you have to only listen. So people who again, can't hear, can't participate. So to me, it's really fascinating that just the idea that there are things that can help people with that kind of thing and people are working on them, you know? Yeah. It's and working it's, on them quickly. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. I guess most technologies have a double side, like we're talking about the internet, mm-hmm. right? But the goal should always be, or at least when we're doing human research, we have to demonstrate that the potential to help is greater than the potential. Mm-hmm to harm. And I think I read part of the Dalai Lama's book, The Universe and a Single Atom, and it blew me away because he was talking about science and religion and how the Dalai Lama is like a big fan of physics and neuroscience. And I know people who have gone out to meet with him and pre-COVID, he used to have these annual conferences where he would just talk to scientists, you know, physicists and neuroscientists and everyone else. And in his book, it started by saying, if science proves the principles of my religion to be false, I would change my beliefs. And I thought like, that surprised me. That was like the first part of this. And the second piece was, but I think scientists have an ethic, an ethical, like nobody is really holding the responsibility for what it is that people do with what they have done. So the flip side of that is that scientists need to be ethical and make sure somebody needs to build the bridge between what we learn and how it's implemented in the world. Cause there's this huge yeah. gap between research and, and helping, I think. Yeah. And, and I thought that, you know, I, w- when I said like people use differences, research, inappropriately mm-hmm. and harmfully. But I don't think that should make us afraid to do it. Like we need to do it. We need to build representative models that help lots of different kinds of people, but we need to do it responsibly. That's it. Right. So I, I, I think this is all like the helping part is what we should keep in mind. Like we're trying mm-hmm. to advance human, the human condition and the world, not just humans. Humans are kind of advancing a lot. So one thing I know we can't get into a ton, but you're writing a book and Writing a book is a rite of passage for many people for many different things. So, yeah, and it's exhausting, apparently. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. Right now, I was thinking about this. I was like, I feel, okay, I feel I have two full-time jobs right now, and it feels like I'm dating two people. (laughs) (laughs) So when something is irritating me about one, I can fall into the other, and that's really great. I don't know. I've never dated two people, no judgment about that, but, like, this is how I imagine it would be. Like one person, <laughs> things are good here, I go bad, I go over here. But when things are going well for both of them, you're just like, I ain't got time for this. Yeah. <laughs> That's where I'm at right now. So I'm uh, I'm three weeks away from final book deadline. I'm so excited. It's called The Neuroscience of You. So I think this is really, it was an, a passion project that the inspiration for it came when... Donald Trump was elected president Mm -hmm. because I saw how many people who before that could totally talk to each other and stopped. I just saw a lot of disillusion of, of relation relationships. And I realized that like, you know, when my husband who's also in the same field and I would talk about these things that I had this kind of like secret power for understanding differences and for communicating through differences. yeah. And so that was kind of the inspiration. And I was really, really lucky to have people pick up on this idea that like neuroscience isn't a one size fits all 
field. And this is about how to figure out, talking about some of these different design choices the brain makes and how people can figure out, try and reverse engineer their own brains and brains of other people who they might be close to or far away from and try Mm -hmm. and figure out why are they like that? Why am I like this? Yeah. And I think like one of the things that I love about your podcast and this idea that, you know, it's more than just work, it's about what, what lights you up in that realm. What I really have learned about this writing a book, like my, my agent whose job it is to support me through this process told me writing a book is like jumping off a building without a parachute. I would never do it. I'm like, what? You're supposed yeah, to talk to me into interesting. this. Yeah, it's, it's motivational, yeah. <laughs> but, but she's not wrong because <laughs> it's a whole new world. And I think, um, what I have, like the number one thing I have learned is that I cannot be creative when I'm stressed mm. and I can, I can write a grant, which is what I'm doing right now. I can write a grant under incredible pressure or yeah. paper. I can talk about science. I can say smart things, but I can't say them in a way that can, like the goal of the book is to write something that's truer than average, but also more relatable than average. Mm-hmm. My target audience is not academics. My target audience is the people who I'm surrounded with in my life, real people, you know? So trying to break these complex ideas into things that are digestible and interesting and doing that under stress, it's a no-go. It is impossible. But at the same time, when I get sucked into my book, it'll be like, you know, that's my first real experience of flow. I heard people talking about being in the Mm -hmm. flow and I was like, "Mm." but I can get into the book and I can just hours can go by. And I'm like, crap, day job, other, other, other partners calling me, you know, this is BS, but it's been, if I make it through, which I will, I'm at the end here. I think it's been uh, like the best thing I can say is that I'm 46 Mm -hmm. years old. And I think I've been successful in a lot of domains, but this, you know, really, really, really stretched me in a way I couldn't have possibly imagined. And, and it was awesome because, you know, sometimes you kind of feel like, okay, well, I've made it or I'm here or whatever. Like I've done all the really scary yeah. things or I don't know, I, I, but I, I haven't. <laughs> I write a book. This. Yeah. I know. And I, I, I guess like I would just also say I don't recommend doing it during a global pandemic if you <laughs> for the first time, like, <laughs> if, you have a cho- if you have a choice, but uh, it's fine. It's, everything is fine. Did you do new research for it or are you just aggregating things you knew? Some of it. Oh, no, I learned so much. Like I would say one of the things that happened too late in the game is that eventually I started to like, I had this plan and I had, you know, a book proposal and chapters and things that I wanted to cover. Most of them were outside of my ex, not most, like many of them were outside of my expertise. And then, and I was really, really trying to stick to the plan. But as I got into it, certain parts would grow and, you know, other parts would shrink. And those parts that that grow are things either that I know about or that I think about Mm -hmm. a lot, you know, and they became bigger, like, like connecting and language and, and how, you know, those things are different, how important they are and how the brain makes you good or bad at it. But I had to learn a lot. Like, you know, it starts from the chemical level, which is not something I study and goes all the way up to like how two brains try and connect to one another. The chemical chapter so far is called mixology. (laughs) That's cool. (laughs) Talks talks about your your ingredients of your neural cocktail. No, that's going to be really cool. Cause I mean, just having, and we've chatted a little bit about MRIs before just on Facebook, I guess, but like just having been in an MRI so many times and having different, you know, everyone gets blood taken or other stuff. It's fascinating to me. I don't like looking at the MRI of my brain, first of all. And I don't know if that's like, I should, maybe you would know, is that normal? It freaks me out to see my brain and I'm almost like, oh, because my brain is looking at itself and maybe that's. Oh, that's so cool. I love it. I, I was really freaked out to look at my brain because I, when I was younger, I had the stomach for it. I read a lot of Stephen King novels <laughs> and this is one, one of his novels is called, I think it's called the dark half. And it's about a guy, spoiler alert, if you want to read this book, who like abs- <laughs> absorbed a twin and was an absorbed twin, which really happens. And he's like having all these. Wait, it really happens sort of, in uh, real life. A twin can absorb a twin. Yeah. Like one twin will absorb another twin. Yeah. But in this book, like the guy's having headaches and he's also having these like, you know, inclinations to do things, but 
He goes and has a brain scan. That's a long story long. And there is a freaking eyeball oh. inside his brain that's like blinking and like parts of teeth. And that's how he finds out. I don't think any of it's I don't possible. think so. It would take a lot. It would have to develop a lot. Like- now I'm like freaked out. Can you imagine the dentist? Open your mouth. No, no, you're going to have to go inside my brain, actually. that It's those teeth. <laughs> a brain tooth cavity. So I told somebody about this when I, I didn't get my first brain scan until I was um, at Carnegie Mellon learning how to do that as a postdoc. And I, I had, I guess I had like mentioned this casually over beers, like years before I got into the scanner. And one of my friends, oh, this is such a jerky thing to do sent me an email that says incidental finding which of course is like a heart like a heart wrenching thing after my scan and literally had photoshopped parts of eyeballs she had took my brain and like photoshopped pieces of of eyeballs it was you know obviously i knew at that point it was a joke (laughs) (laughs) so that's that's my story about of being afraid to look at brains but I, i imagine your experiences based on like, how am I doing? But no, I mean, I'm ridiculous about it. Like, because I even told the doctor one day, I was like, you know, I don't want to look at it. And she goes, what? And I go, I don't want to, she goes, let me show you. And I go, no, I don't, I don't like to look at the brain. And I said, I can look at the spine. And she just kind of didn't really have much patience for me. I'm like, what, you know, what the 80 year olds are more fun. Sorry. You know? So you feel like you're naked or something like you're seeing it's yourself. Just like I don't like seeing it because you know they move it like when they move the scan. So you see it all moving and I'm like, scan it through. I don't know what's going on. And I don't because I think it's really cool that the MRI can see so much, but it does. It does freak me out because I'm just like, whoa, it's a lot. Would, would you like to look at someone else's? Brain? I think it wouldn't bother or do me. You just need the brain. There's like maybe yeah. my brain recognizes. Maybe I wouldn't know. I wonder if I saw another brain. And this is really, there's no point to this part of the conversation, but people maybe will also have this same experience. But maybe I wonder if I would even recognize another brain. That's <laughs> so weird. I'm going to go with no. Probably not. I'm going to bet on no. But no, I think it, I think it's, I think, remember, I do weird. That's my jam. Yeah. I think it's really fascinating. That's why I asked you. Yeah, I just <laughs> find it cringy. So. <laughs> it's like too vulnerable to see yourself all sliced up like yeah, that, right? Exactly. Like, I mean, what we were just saying, it was weird, right? So I, I really, really feel like your brain just cut off this conversation because it didn't want to be its secrets to be revealed. Yes. Right now. Yes. So just so listeners know, and I'm just going to leave this in now because we've already committed, but basically my internet connection just went down for a moment. So, all right. So I, I wanted to ask you to, cause I mean, your job, you're just doing something you love, which I, which is amazing. But then you also have a passion for horses, right? And that's like your thing. I think that, so first, there. I think they're related. Of course, everything is related because it's me that's, mm-hmm. you know, the center of like what, what makes me interested in these things. But I think the horse is really, really, really good for me because their mental life is so different than ours, mm-hmm. right? So people, and I had this aha moment that I'm going to share with the world. And if somebody gets rich and famous off of it, fine. Cause I think it's really important. One day I was, you know, on a commute with my husband and I just clicked with me that people, so people have this probably unique ability to think about things that aren't right in front of them. Like we spend so much of our life mind wandering We're, you know, we're thinking about what we're going to say next. We're, you know, dreading what we already said or did, or, you know, or like daydreaming about Jason Momoa or whatever, (laughs) wherever your brain takes you. It's like, you know, it, it's not like, I think more and more as we're on social media or as we're just like in our heads, we're, we're, our, our mental lives are more and more disconnected from the physical world around us. And and I, and horses aren't like that. So, and most animals, but horses are like these like 1200, nine to 1200 pound prey <laughs> that are giant and they're in your space and they're really just trying to figure out if they're going to get eaten. Mm. So they're like paying attention to you and your body language. And, you know, for me, that was the big, this was one, this is one reason I have horses is that I can't. I have a horse is that I can't, I show up at the end of a day and I'm like, Oh, I'm stressed. I only have 15 minutes. I have to do this, this, and this. And, and I'd put my horse in the cross size and they'd be like dancing around. And I'd be like, why today of all days, why are you like this? And she's like, what the hell is going to eat us? Cause I get yeah, all stressed okay. out. Right. So that's why. 
And so it's kind of like, oh, it's a big mirror, a Mm. big mirror, you know, and I'm like, okay, oh, you need to chill out. You need to breathe and, oh, you know, this and that. But what I learned from the horse, like through this, so my last horse I owned for more than 15 years and it was an off the track racehorse that was always ready to run away. That was Mm. her her sort of MO. So she really, 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 really taught me how much we influence each other. And this was my aha moment is that because we live inside our head, we're totally unaware of how we feel lonely because that's like a private thing, right? But we're also like totally tuned out to how much we affect Mm. each other. Like just our, you know, whether it's verbal or nonverbal, I'm kind of hypersocial. So I'm like prone to like complimenting someone on their scarf on the bus yeah, or something, yeah. you know, I'm that weird. I'm that weird person. But then they're like, so happy, yeah. like, Oh, my God, you saw me. And sometimes and sometimes people are like, Why are you talking? <laughs> to me? I don't know you. And that's okay. But through my learnings with the horse, I just had this moment where I was like, Oh, my God, we are social animals. We are social primates. Our brains mirror that th- we understand each other by like mirroring what our, what we would do. And yet we spend so much of our like conscious effort, like our, our mental worlds are so devoid from are so often detached from our surroundings that we really don't understand how much your mood might be affected by the mood of someone else around you or how much a smile can, you know, just how much, how much emotional contagion and how much social interactions are important. We just don't understand all the little ripples, right? So like at the end of the day, you might write a book or you might be in a documentary or you might just be a person who compliments people's scarf on the bus or whatever, but like we don't, understand all the little ripples that we create and and the people around us. And I thought, whoa, that's really intense. So that's why I have horses. They really, I, and dogs for different reasons, but like, I feel that there's an honesty there and like an ability to connect that doesn't require words. And it's like, if you are behaving in a way that's like consistent, like if you're mad, then the horse will be like, what are you mad about? But they're fine. But if you're like trying to act calm, but your hands are in a fist and your shoulders are stuff, the horse will be like, mm, there's something weird about this person. Yeah. You know, they, they don't like it. So it gives you a lot of feedback about like how you are huh. and what kind of vibe you're putting off. And yeah. Well, so actually something I thought of earlier and then I forgot because we started talking about something else, but when you physically connect brains, right? Like through, or Mm -hmm. whatever, through hardware and yeah, tools. Tools. Okay. Mm -hmm. So there, I mean, there's signals being going through these tools and that's what's occurring. But as someone who's been called an empath and who's labeled myself that many times, then I think a horse would be similar, right? Is there a study of that or that aspect of things? And have you done that? I haven't done that. I mostly, I only study Mm -hmm. thinking. I think I get really squirmy in the feeling world. And I think it's because I'm, I I read in, in my writing of the book, I read some research on empathy and empathy skills. I watch movies and I sob. I feel like I see somebody getting hurt on a video and I like, I'm like, that is not funny. It hurt. Like, I feel like someone punched me, you know? And I'm like, I, Robbie, you're I'm like, the worst because funny. I know. And it, it's been more than one guest has said they think falling videos are funny. And so, yeah, I think it's funny sometimes. But not when someone gets, like, punched. I do think it's funny, too. But, I, well, I think it would, well, like, do you, there's, like, a fine line between when you think it's funny and when you're like, are they dead? <laughs> you know, like, yes. You know, some of those videos are like, did that person die? Yeah, like, America's Funniest Videos. Sometimes I would be like, I'm not enjoying this show. It's too. <laughs> Somebody flies up a rope swing, like, into a wall yeah, or something. You're like, are yeah. you dead? <laughs> Is your brain okay? <laughs> but, so, I haven't done the, that research, but it's really interesting because people mean different things when they say em- mm-hmm. empathy, right? But Brene Brown says empathy yeah. is feeling with. And that's what it looks like in the brain. Like they also call it emotional contagion. So if you're watching somebody experiencing some different kind of feeling, your brain will take on that mm. feeling. So if it's like fear, then the amygdala will come on. If it's happy, like your your dopamine centers will come on. And that is based on that basic premise of the social brain. When you watch someone, you know, picking up a spoon, the part of your brain that picks up a spoon also activates. Oh. One of the only ways we can understand language is because there's all this mess in this acoustic signal. 
is that like my vowels are different than your vowels and all this stuff, but like your brain mimics like, oh, this person is, I'm hearing this stream. Like what would my, how would I produce that stream? And there's like one-on-one production in your brain with sounds or closer to a one-on-one production. So it like hears and then it models and it does. And it, so we do, so basically our brains have all these simulations going on and feeling is one of them. It's like oh, wild. It's so cool. And great and beautiful. Yeah. yeah, it is. But isn't it weird? I think some of the things that we're, we've talked about today, like when we went from like happy to noxious back to happy is like, some of the, again, like going like, how do you use this for the good or for the evil? A lot of like the problems with internet and stuff like that are leveraging our desire to connect. It's like, it's like going off of this human social brain and how we feel reward and oh, somebody liked that. And, you know, so it's like, we're, you know, it's like taking our biological desire to connect with one another. And then it's like using that to find pants for you or whatever, you know, it's like, you know, it's, it's using that because it's highly addictive because our brains are set up for that social interaction, but it doesn't quite give us certain things like eye contact and, and touch Mm -hmm. and things like that, that it's also kind of craving in those interactions. Yeah. There's been a lot of like, well, they were talking about, you know, having the endless scroll is really bad for people and yeah. setting up some cues like, do you want to keep scrolling? And then I was learning a lot. I'm doing this public leadership credential at Harvard Kennedy. And like one of the things is that we did. No big deal. No big deal. It's not a big deal. I mean, it's Baller. what I could have. Well, it's what I could afford of the options for grad school. But like basically I did this course about moral leadership. And one thing was around nudges and how nudges work and the social pressure around them though and stuff. And so it's all been really interesting because you're right. Just that small awareness of one class gave me all this like, oh, I see what they're doing. I'm not going to. In the comments section, like you have comments there because you want me to go in them and then you want me to comment and then you want me to buy this chocolate or whatever today, (laughs) you know? And it's just, yeah, it's yeah. it's really something. So, oh, that's really cool. So, is there anything that we didn't cover that you would want to cover? Um, I just wanted to say I, I've told you this offline, but I'd like to tell your listeners that I think it's really important that you're doing this podcast. And I think you know one of the things that you, I mean, scientists we get trained to do science, but a lot of the important things we do, like science communication, mentoring, and so forth and so on. We get no training mm-hmm. for, but I feel like it's a really important part of my job to mentor these young minds that are trying to figure out, do they want to be a doctor or a lawyer? Do they want to be a scientist? They're in this yeah. lab, but like, what are they going to do with that? And, you know, I have no training, no, no formal training on that, but I always dream for them. I always say like, my dream for you is that you'll have a job that you love, that you wake up and love mm-hmm. to do. And I really like that, you know, you also say like, or can you find ways, you know, it's like not everyone, many, most people work for money. And is there ways to find passion in that? You know, are there ways to find passion around it? And and, um, I just really appreciate that you had this idea and that you work so hard in your spare time. So thank you. Yeah. And I think it's becoming more apparent to me now. I'm just finding ways I can contribute to work that are aligned with my desire to write and do things. And I can help with that kind of stuff that they need, but also do my job. And I think, yeah, just so you saying that gives me the opportunity to say that again, for people just to think about if you're doing something that you're not necessarily driven by, maybe there are things within your organization you can still do, you know, which is mm-hmm. good. Mm-hmm. But yeah, well, thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. So I have a set of questions I ask every guest. And before that, I just like to ask, do you have any sort of, I mean, we, we always end up with like a lot of advice that people can pick out of a episode or a mantra or whatever, but do you have anything you want to share with listeners that you've, that's resonated with you lately, or maybe while you've been in the stress of book writing or something? I guess I would just say, I think the biggest mistake we make when we're trying to understand each other is, is based on this social modeling that our brain does. And you put yourself in someone else's shoes is actually not all that good because it's not you and they're shoes it's them and their shoes and so I think that like instead of going like why are they doing that that's stupid or that's bad decision making imagine that their brain is totally exactly as rational as your brain none of them are logical and then try and figure out like what are their values or their experiences or how does their brain work that might lead them to behave that way instead of like oh I wouldn't do that that's wrong or or something like that I think that like if everybody could get to that point where it's like well, imagine what could be the circumstances that leads that person yeah. 
to make that choice, then maybe we would understand each other a little bit more, have a little bit more mm-hmm. compassion for people who are different. Yeah, that's really nice. Cool. All right. So the fun five, and I think we're both wearing t-shirts today. People will see that in the photo that we take, but basically, can you talk about what's the oldest t-shirt you have and still wear? The oldest t-shirt I have and still wear is Roscoe's Chicken and Waffles from uh, Long Beach. (laughs) (laughs) Is that from college days or something? Uh, Yeah. Man, it's, yeah. I mean, that plate, that's cool. That's great. Yeah. (laughs) It's got like, you know, it's so thin and soft Uh and not for not really for public but it's yeah. great and it's got so much nostalgia yeah, that's cool i know when they start i have so many t-shirts that have holes that make them you know they're almost like lacking the properties of a Air shirt conditioned. yeah all right so <laughs> it's seemed like groundhog's day for a while now because we've been stuck in these kind of pandemic routines if it was really groundhog's day what song would you have your alarm clock play oh my gosh okay don't judge me this is what it would be the song I would play is Who Let the Dogs Out? <laughs> because every morning I go downstairs and I play, like, even if I don't want to, I start my day every day by going downstairs and play, after I feed them, I play with my dogs for like five minutes. And it's just a moment to be, abs- I mean, the song is just absolutely silly, but like, it's just a moment to be and do something that makes <laughs> no sense whatsoever. And it all, like, no matter how busy or stressed out I am, my dogs now demand it and so i think my that would be my alarm <laughs> just to remind me to, to, that i have to have a moment that makes no sense that's just to do something for this that's good no i mean this i have a spotify playlist of all the songs and it's pretty crazy so this will be a good ad for that i mean i wouldn't pick like a good song i would just pick a song that remind that reminds me to yeah do something no that's smart and also yeah you don't want to sacrifice a song you really really love and, and hate it hate, yep. make you hate it all right coffee or tea or neither coffee <laughs> definitely coffee i i mean if i had to have tea uh, like yeah there's actually a part in the book that's about coffee versus tea oh. in my brain and tea is tea is for cold ice maybe for living in the south or something like coffee is for life <laughs> <laughs> for getting you through the mornings at least you know <laughs> i always try to think not that i have a strong opinion about this well i always try to think of episode titles and i don't know if people ever wonder how i come up with them but i just pick a quote that i like and i almost feel like tea is for living in the south that's like <laughs> amazing i don't think either one will end up being it but anyway that's <laughs> that's good that's your <laughs> we'll see if it does it again all right and can you think of like a time that you laughed so hard you cried or couldn't stop or just something that makes you do that like when you think about it Oh my God, it's definitely my husband. And I have to say that for better or for worse, and it's definitely for worse, I know this, like our sense of humor have come to merge. We call ourselves astronauts of stupid because <laughs> we just like, I am like, I don't know, like the like the stereotypical 10-year-old boy mm. on the inside when it comes to my sense yeah. of humor. It's just like very simple, like goofy cartoons or whatever. And, and yeah, I mean, I can remember a lot of things that were absolutely nothing, just like he said a word funny or wrong or something, and then he says something else, and we're just crying and can't stop laughing. <laughs> nice. That's cool. And that's good to have that in your husband, too. I think that's really good. Yes. Okay, and who inspires you right now? Hmm. Who inspires me right now? You oh. inspire me. I think you're amazing. Like, you put, you spend your energy on so many things that matter, uh, to you. And, and I'm always like, wow, how does Rabia have all these Fs? <laughs> My daughter inspires me. She's young and saving the planet. Mm-hmm. I told you before, I used to say Ruth Bader Ginsburg, she inspires me right now, even though she doesn't exist. Because when I'm working really hard, I'm always like, what would her yeah. energy do? Like she got this. She would not eat. She would work for like 20 hours and not sleep. But I don't, I, that's not my predisposition. My predisposition is like, who let the dogs out? <laughs> so, sometimes, I, sometimes I need to, I need to get a little, dig a little deeper. You have that who let the dogs out energy? That <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Totally. That's my default. <laughs> but still, she's inspiring for sure. Completely. Yeah. Completely. Well, thank you. That's really nice of you. And how... If you want, if people want to look you up or want to know more about you and also like, I guess your book will come out when not until next year. Uh, right? I'm not sure. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. So, next year. Yeah, so anyway, if people are listening in 2022, that's, <laughs> you can find the book, but before then, what, what do you want people to look up? You can look up Chantal That's my website. It's a little, it's a little 
kind of a tiny bit old, but I think if you Google, if you put my name in so far, as far as I know, mostly you'll find relevant things. (laughs) (laughs) If you just Google my name, you'll probably find my lab website and my personal website and something about if you YouTube uh, brain to human brain to brain interface, you'll find the, the home video I made of connecting my husband to my colleague. And so any of those things. Awesome. Cool. Well, Chantel, thank you so much for doing this. It was a lot of fun to chat with you in this way. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Rabia. Good luck. Thanks again for listening this week. You can find out more about the guest in the show notes and at RabiaSaid.com. Joe Mafia created the music just for this podcast. Find him on Spotify. That's Joe, M-A-F-F-I-A. And Rob Metke is responsible for our visual design. You can find him online by searching for Rob, M-E-T-K-E. Thanks, Rob. Let me know who you'd like to hear from or about your own experiences defining yourself outside of work. Follow at More Than Work Pod or send a message on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or LinkedIn. Or visit our website, morethanworkpod.com. Give us a follow on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review if you like. Thanks for listening to More Than Work. While being kind to others, don't forget to be kind to yourself.